Welcome to the next edition of the Law of Nations podcast. My name is Angeline Walsh. I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers. This year, we are celebrating the 60th anniversary of the New York Convention. As the New York Convention emerges as the elderly statesman of the international dispute resolution world, it's tempting to focus on the history of this remarkable legal instrument, which entered into force in 1958, but gained real currency in terms of party uptake throughout the 80s and 90s. And linked to this, there's no question that the industry of the practice of international arbitration has transformed significantly in the last decade alone. When I started to practice litigation well over a decade ago, general litigation teams handled dispute resolution processes in all forms. There was no need for a separate group comprising solely of international arbitration specialists. Now we have not only significant teams, but whole law firms dedicated to the practice of international arbitration. But to focus on the practice of international arbitration alone may be to miss another achievement to the New York Convention, to establish a framework for international cooperation which opens the door to different forms of international dispute resolution. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the way in which the face of international dispute resolution is changing outside the world of arbitration. Specifically, we're going to focus on the developments in the commercial courts and ask whether increasing international cooperation between those courts could lead to significant rivalry with arbitration for international dispute resolution work. With me to take a look beyond the world of international arbitration, I'm delighted to have, in fact, two prominent arbitration experts. Um, firstly, Sir Bernard Eder, who um, is a distinguished arbitrator and mediator, but also sits as an international judge at the Singapore International Commercial Court. Um, he sits in the Commercial Court in the British Virgin Islands and is a former English High Court judge, um, sitting, um, as he did, mainly in the Commercial Court. Prior to his judicial career, Bernard acted as counsel in well over um, uh, 300 cases, both court and arbitration proceedings, um, which is a staggering number of cases, uh, Bernard. There are few people, um, I wager, who've been as close to the development of international arbitration um, as Sir Bernard. Also with me is Sophie Lamb QC. Sophie is a litigation partner in the London office of Latham and Watkins and the global co-chair of the firm's international arbitration practice. She is tremendously experienced in handling international arbitration proceedings um, and also um, acting as counsel before the English courts. And with that experience um, and her position at Latham Watkins, Sophie has the inside track into what the ultimate users of disp dispute resolution process really want. So let's start with looking at some of the developments um, in the commercial courts. And I wanted to start with a question for you, um, Bernard. Um, it, just to introduce my question, in the past decade, decade or so, there has been a rapid development in global trade and investment. International arbitration has been very successful in riding that wave as a dispute, dispute resolution form of choice due to many factors, including its ability to assimilate different cultural preferences and the often cited advantage of the New York Convention as a global enforcement mechanism. Um, I want to come back to enforcement in a moment, but just in terms of adapting to the global nature of disputes, um, can you tell us a little bit about, in, what, in your view, what the big centres for commercial disputes have done or are doing um, to adapt to attract some of this work? Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me along. Um, um, the past decade certainly has seen a rapid development uh, in, in arbitration, but it's also seen uh, 
commercial courts emerging throughout the world. So you have a commercial court, I think, in Belgium just announced, I think two weeks ago, uh, that will hear disputes in English. Uh, there's a similar one in the Netherlands. Um, and there are not only courts and arbitration centers all over the world. Now in Kazakhstan, I think in Mauritius, um, uh, many countries have set up their own centers. Uh, my experience is um, mainly, and certainly in recent years, in, in Singapore, uh, where there is um, a, a huge emphasis both on arbitration in SIAC, uh, the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, uh, and in mediation, the Mediation Centre, and of course the Singapore International Commercial Court, where uh, I sit uh, with a, a, a number of uh, other uh, judges. You mentioned in your introduction uh, how uh, arbitration uh, assimilates or different cultural preferences. Well, that is certainly true of the International Commercial Court in Singapore. So you have judges sitting in Singapore uh, from all over the world, from America, USA, uh, from England, uh, from France, um, uh, Australia, uh, Japan, um, Hong Kong. Uh, and so uh, the court there brings together uh, different uh, cultural experiences in various areas, in particular with regard to, for example, disclosure of documents uh, and cross-examination. Historically, in many civil law countries, uh, disclosure uh, doesn't exist or isn't, doesn't exist in the way we know it in England. Uh, and equally, cross-examination is unknown in the way that we do it uh, in England, in common law jurisdictions. So the uh, Singapore International Commercial Court has uh, developed to bring together uh, these different uh, cultural preferences uh, uh, and um, uh, I would like to think that it is, uh, although it's not a competitor to London, uh, has, uh, uh, has and will be uh, a, a major, play a major important role uh, in the uh, role in dispute resolution. Uh, in terms of um, uh, what it's doing to adapt, so for example, uh, in Singapore, we are at the moment uh, revamping the rules of court uh, to create uh, a modern, uh, robust, efficient dispute resolution uh, forum. Uh, I'm not here really to debate the uh, advantages of arbitration and court, but there are certain things in court. So for example, you have transparency, you have a public venue, though in Singapore again, uh, you, you can have confidentiality, and in particular cases, I have no doubt, um, the court will order confidentiality uh, to mirror what you get in, in arbitration. So what are the courts doing? Certainly in Singapore, they're developing, they have developed and are developing uh, and focusing on making sure that the court is uh, efficient uh, uh, and uh, brings together the different cultural uh, preferences. In London, I have to say, for example, in the commercial court, there is uh, the market test procedure, which Lord Ten Thomas mentioned in his Beijing speech, which I understand has been uh, uh, much liked and, and is, um, there is a certain amount of business in the commercial court in London on that. So I think the question is always uh, to make sure that um, uh, uh, ideas are, are brought together uh, and, and you never stand still. Last thing I want to mention is um, cross-pollination and that is um, not only do individual judges sit in different jurisdictions, uh, but there are, as I've said, different judges sitting together in the court in Singapore. So you get this uh, cross-pollination in those two different ways, which I think is um, tremendously exciting, um, both in terms of procedural law and also substantive law.
One of the really interesting things about that is, as you're speaking, Bernard, it strikes me that the advantages of cross-pollination in terms of procedure, but also cultural approaches to decision-making, is often cited as one of the main advantages to arbitration. Do you think that this means that the way in which rules will develop, I mean, you can take Singapore as an example as you like, will come closer to the rules as developed in arbitration? Will the offering start to look quite similar? Yes, I mean, I, 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 I think flexibility is, is the central tenet of any litigation system. Um, so, for example, um, one of the great questions in Singapore, and I'm not here to tell you what will be in the rules, but in England we have a system which has developed over a long time. You have pleadings, you have disclosure, you have witness statements, and then you have trial. Um, and that's very different from many arbitrations. The main difference on the other end is what you call memorials. So uh, the claimant will put in a memorial with witness statements, with disclosure supporting his case, her case, um, and maybe experts' reports as well in one go. And then the respondent will put in their own memorial, similarly with their witness statements, disclosure, um, uh, and perhaps expert witness statements and, and experts' reports. So in terms of procedure, that is the what most or many civil lawyers would expect. It's very um, uh, unusual for an English lawyer to, to come to that. Um, and, um, uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages in both of those. Um, and so I think the experience of the commercial court in Singapore will focus on those kind of issues in terms of procedural law. In terms of English, in terms of substantive law, um, I think I can say this, um, I sat in England um, two years ago, um, I can talk about the substantive law, I was overturned by the English Court of Appeal, and my view is wrongly so. Uh, in England, when I sit, I am bound by the Court of Appeal in England, but when I sit in Singapore, I will say that the English Court of Appeal is wrong on a substantive law issue, the law of contract. Right. Um, and the law of contract in Singapore is going in a completely different direction on a number of really important points in terms of interpretation, in terms of factual matrix, in terms of damages, um, a different direction from English law. And um, th th those kind of substantive law questions, I think, are very interesting. I mean, quite often, uh, I want to come back to procedure in a minute, but in terms of substantive law, um, what I increasingly find in many of the disputes I'm involved with, particularly with common law jurisdictions, is that you are not, it could be an English law governed case, but you're not necessarily limited to English cases. It could be, I mean, of course, it ha it's no, it's not presidential value, but it may be persuasive to say, well, look, there is, has, there is a different way of looking at it and you could bring in a judgment from the Singapore courts and, and so forth. And particularly that, I mean, and of course one could do that in arbitration in some ways a bit more, a bit easier than you could do before uh, the English court. Um, but, but, but that sort of seems to me to be something which is happening anyway. And I think what sounds quite interesting about the Singapore court is that you, it sounds as if you, you could go to the Singapore International Court potentially in future and the same procedure or approach to substantive law, maybe this is not correct, but this, the same sort of approach that you'd expect if you go to an arbitral tribunal, you could ask the Singapore court to accommodate. I mean, is that, is that a sort of fair understanding of what 
the way you think things may develop? Well, um, I, I think in arbitration you will often get awards which um, perhaps do not analyse the law in such a rigid way. I think the commercial court in Singapore um, regards itself very much as a, a court which will apply the law and um, very much um, uh, it's a public forum generally if there's no confidentiality. The judgments are public and therefore they're very much part of the development of the substantive law not only in Singapore but generally in the common law jurisdictions. Um, so I'm not sure I've answered your question but, but I think there is a strong strong view that the commercial court in Singapore is the lead court in that area of the world dealing with often very difficult questions of law um, and um, in a way perhaps that you don't get in arbitration. There's, there's a kind of a rigour and a discipline because it's a public judgment Yes. you don't get um, perhaps in arbitration. So that's one way in which it would, it could slightly different, um, it could be slightly different and as you say case law Singapore case law could evolve in a different way to English case law and there could be a real sort of choice there in terms of governing law. Um, going back to procedure, do you think that um, the Singapore courts will offer something quite similar to arbitration in terms of procedure yes. in the future? I mean, on, so for example, on those steps that I mentioned, pleadings, um, disclosure, witness statements and then trial, in terms of pleadings, I think um, uh, what the court may offer in certainly in the future is as flexibility. So in particular cases, you will have English style pleadings, you may have memorials, um, you may have something in between that. Um, equally in terms of disclosure, the, it, what it's adopted at the moment is uh, the train of inquiry uh, disclosure rule has been abandoned um, and has a different rule in the, in the international court from the ordinary courts in Singapore. And, and instead of that, we broadly have an IBA type approach. Um, that's not, it's not identical, but broadly an IBA approach mm -hmm. uh, because the court considers that the IBA approach is the a good modern way of dealing with uh, uh, disclosure. And perhaps making it a bit more limited, which is what um, parties well, yeah. want in terms of bringing down costs and increasing efficiency. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, so Singapore is sort of, in some ways, one might say, um, leading the vanguard in terms of development of procedure for, for commercial courts. One of the things that court um, my eye in the last year or so was a speech which um, Lord Thomas, who's the former Chief Justice of England and Wales, made in Singapore. Said, Lord Thomas is perhaps best known to the arbitration world but, um, for a different speech in which he suggested that you know, it was a, a shame that large commercial disputes were going to arbitration, not to the courts, and so stunting the development of, the, uh, of commercial law through open justice. But the, the speech which I thought in some ways was more interesting was the one he gave in Singapore where he talks about the convergence of a procedural system for international disputes and establishing an international forum for the commercial courts to meet and develop a common procedure. And in that speech, he goes into quite a lot of detail about, well, you know, could one develop a, com a common IT system? Could we develop um, common procedural code which is more flexible, which takes into account an inquisitorial process um, or an adversarial process, which seems a bit more along the lines of the, of the procedure which the Singapore court may be developing based on what you've said. Um, 
if you were to then, I mean, could that be, firstly, I'd be interested to, to know, do you know where that initiative currently stands? Um, that's the first question. The second question is, could cooperation between some of the major commercial courts be transformative in terms of the courts offering a different dispute resolution process or a rival dispute resolution process for arbitration? Well, uh, uh, if you start off, you look at the world of arbitration just for a moment. Over What's happened over the last 10 years is that each centre of arbitration has um, plagiarised, if that's the right word, um, <laughs> what they've gone round, they've looked at what each other centre is offering, it's a competitive world, and they try to take the best of everything. Yes. And what one has had over the last 10 years is a process whereby um, best practice has really developed. And, and so if you look at the SEAC rules, if you look at the Hong Kong rules, if you look at the LCIA, there are important differences that remain. But in broad terms, there's a lot of conversion. There's a lot of conversion, and that I would expect similarly in the courts, the commercial courts, who will have that similar conversion over a period of time. Uh, so far as the Standing Forum is concerned, for those who don't know, there is a, a website um, uh, that uh, is very useful. It shows that there are some, I think there are some 33 countries with commercial courts who are now members of this Standing Forum. There was a big meeting in London, uh, last year, um, its base is, is London, um, uh, but um, uh, it, it, it receives input from all around the court. There is a meeting due to take place in, I think, September in New York, uh, and I would expect uh, important things to come from that. Um, I, I do think it's important, uh, interesting, but it's also important that uh, there is a a best practice developed, and I think the best best way to develop best practice is to see what other courts are doing, to look at what individual courts are doing better than others, uh, and adopting that procedure. Um, I would like to think that the rules that I am currently working on with other judges in Singapore, and the Chief Justice and a large team in Singapore are doing this, are developing uh, a form of rules of, for the commercial court in Singapore that may well provide the benchmark for other courts around the world. Um, and um, I'm very much in favour of discussion and meeting. I don't know, I'm afraid, more than that at the moment. I mean, what would be really interesting is to see, it seems to me that there are almost two issues. There's one, one is the sort of development of best practice for procedural rules for each of the courts, but then there might be a secondary question about cooperation between the courts, uh, reciprocity. I mean, do you think that, I mean, that's a, a more challenging proposition potentially in, in terms of you know recognizing we, we you know we could talk about anti-suit injunctions and so forth um where i mean is that something which you would see developing over time or is that a more challenging proposition no i i, I can i can see that i'm now my own view is that over a period of time you will get a conversion uh, 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 of um uh, best practice in terms of procedure. Mm. Um, you will get a um, uh, uh, coalescence, I think, of substantive law. As I say, I sit in the BVI, London and, and Singapore, and it's very difficult to wear different hats all the time. What you tend to do is approach cases in the same way. Um, but I think what will come out of Singapore, I think, will be flexibility. I think that is really important in terms of procedures for one particular case may not be appropriate in another case. But I think equally in terms of recognition and enforcement, uh, maybe we'll come on in a moment to the Hague, 
Hague Choice of Courts um, uh, Convention, um, but equally um, uh, co cooperation in terms of uh, respect for the other courts um, is, is important. Uh, uh, I was, I think I can say this, I was doing, um, due to do two arbitrations two weeks ago, and effectively the injunction, uh, the Singapore court, not the international court, but the ordinary Singapore court may granted and made an order, which was in effect an order to stop the English arbitration. Well, the English arbitration was governed by English law, uh, English venue, English seat, um, and sitting in England, I was under, I think, a statutory duty to carry on with the arbitration. The Singapore order was not binding on an, the English tribunal. And uh, in, the event, in the end, it evaporated, at least for the time being. Um, but those kind of problems, I think, um, would, would um, I'm not sure, evaporate. But I think we should try and avoid those kind of problems. Yeah, maybe there would be a role for the Standing Forum in trying to sort of ensure that... I mean, that, there's a, that, uh, arbitration is just, just one area of law where perhaps greater international cooperation would be so assisted. I think one of the big, the big areas is in the areas of insolvency. Yes. And there, um, Singapore, I know, has developed, not sure, a code, but a, uh, something that I think will, is, is right at the, the forefront of insolvency, international cooperation in insolvency. In that area, I think that's very, very important. Um, recognition of judgments, that will be dealt with perhaps by bilateral treaty and Hague Choice of Courts Convention, and within within this standing forum, I think that will form a, uh, a useful network for developing that kind of cooperation in the years to come. Well, let's talk about the Hague Choice of Courts Convention. So, um, as I said in my introduction, unquestionably one of the reasons for the success of international arbitration is the enforcement regime under the New York Convention. Um, now, there is a debate to be had about whether court judgments, enforcement of court judgments actually need a similar instrument, and I know that's a, a topic which you um, feel strongly about, um, Bernard. But if we were to just look at, even if one were to accept that the New York Convention has been tremendously successful in marketing arbitration as a, um, an international dispute resolution um, process, the Hague Choice of Courts Convention essentially, I mean, su summarising it, but essentially does the same thing for exclusive jurisdiction clauses. And um, now it has it, it has sort of um, had some uptake. It, it obviously doesn't have as many um, parties as the New York Convention signed up to it, um, but it has been signed and ratified by Singapore, the EU, Denmark, Mexico. The US signed it in 2009, it hasn't gone anywhere since then, but China did sign it at the end of last year. I mean, if you go back and you look at the history of the New York Convention and how um, it took quite a long time, it took you know about 30 years until contracting parties really started to sign up to it in any um, real measure. And as you say, I mean, you, you may, there may be a forum, the international forum may actually even be a mechanism to promote some sort of treaty for further international cooperation. Um, do, do you see the Hague Choice of Courts Convention as being critical to the courts assuming a greater role in international work? Um, I think the important word in what you've just asked me is the word critical. I, I think it will facilitate um, uh, enforcement and it will be an important 
uh, it will perform an important role in that area. There's no doubt at all about that. It may take a bit of time, like the New York Convention, as you say, it took a lot of time. But uh, you started off, I have a hobby horse about this, is that uh, <laughs> um, where parties agree, the jurisdiction of a court, similar to an arbitration agreement, where they agree exclusive or even non-exclusive jurisdiction, that operates as a matter of English or common law conflicts of laws as a submission to the jurisdiction of that court. And if that court uh, gives judgment, then as a matter of the common law jurisdiction, certainly England and most uh, co other common law jurisdictions, that judgment will be enforceable. Um, I would say in a similar way, I was going to say more easily, in fact, than the New York Convention. And what the New York Convention did was bring arbitration and arbitration, the enforceability of an arbitration award, which could not, as a matter of English and common law conflicts of laws, be enforced in the same way as a judgment pre-1958. It brought awards into line with judgments. Um, that's what the New York Convention did. And everyone's forgotten then that, in fact, all the exceptions, for example, in the New York Convention are effectively common law yes. exceptions. That's yeah. what they did. So the New York Convention adopted the English conflict of laws with regard to enforcement of a judgment. This is really important where the parties have agreed the jurisdiction of the foreign court. So parties who agree to go to the Singapore International Commercial Court or any other court, if they get a judgment there, that will be I don't want to overstate it, but in a way it's enforceable in a similar way to the New York Convention. Um, uh, but having said that, there is no doubt that the Hague, Hague Choice of Courts Convention will be an important uh, facilitator. Uh, it, 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 it has deficiencies in it, but, but, but it's a good convention. And over the next 10 years, I would hope many countries will sign it and implement it. Um, I, I, I know China has did sign it at the end of 2017. Uh, I, I know no more than what's in the press, but my understanding is that it will be brought into effect in, in China uh, by the end of this year. But, right. uh, but that's all I, I, I have no inside knowledge. Um, that's just what I understand. And if that's right, in that part of the world, that will, I think, be very important uh, facilitator in, in taking things forward. Thanks, Bernard. Well, I think that's really interesting. Sophie, you've been um, patiently listening to Bernard and I talk about the de various developments. And um, let's let's look at, at at this from the client's perspective now. Um, costs and inefficiencies often cited as a major problem for international arbitration, particularly uh, the due process paranoia that we hear so much about these days. Um, courts are not known for having the same level of due process paranoia. They tend to be seen to be a bit more robust in terms of case management and so forth. Do you think if you had the flexibility of procedure that Bernard's been describing for a court, that would be quite attractive to clients and might sort of lead them to agree to their disputes being resolved there rather than arbitration? Well, just a few words perhaps on, on due process paranoia first. I mean, it, it is certainly an issue in international arbitration and we've been made aware of that by end users for some time. And it's, it's so helpful that people like Bernard take the trouble to kind of go back and look at the statistics of how the English court actually behaves when presented with a challenge to, a, to an award based on things like due process, because what you actually find is that a vanishingly small number of arbitration mm. awards where the seat has been in London are ever overturned for due process reasons. And this should be inspiring arbitrators to actually be far more robust 
in their decision making. And I think the more we can talk about those statistics and make arbitrators aware of those statistics, the more confident they ought to be, and I hope they will be, in bringing some of the discipline that that, that the the English courts in particular have been so good uh, at introducing into litigation proceedings into the arbitral process. So, um, uh, you know, that's that's my piece, if you will, on, on due process. Does that alone, or will that alone, cause significant numbers of actors to turn away from international arbitration at this point uh, and move either back to the English court or to a new international court, including one that is a member of a standing forum through which best practices are shared? I think the answer to that is is, is likely no. And the reasons are that um, and, th- and this is sort of, you know, m- my role really in this discussion, I think, is, is, uh, uh, is, is as an, an observer of those who make decisions with regard to choice of forum and uh, a very broad church of decision makers at that. So governments, state-owned enterprises, sovereign wealth funds, multinational groups, financial institutions, the owners of significant intellectual property and technology, uh, you know, banks, those who, who uh, uh, sponsor and underwrite major infrastructure projects. So, you know, a very broad church of actors. And when they choose arbitration, of course, they don't always choose arbitration. When they do, it's by and large for reasons that cannot all be replicated in a court system. So, you know, by way of example, um, when we, th- when we think about state actors, and state actors are a very substantial body of actors in international arbitration, particularly because they take on you know, ever greater commercial roles, whether it's the investments made by their sovereign wealth funds, their interna- uh, you know, interactions in the international energy markets, and so on. They will not cede sovereignty by choosing to have their disputes resolved by the courts of another Sovereign, even if it's a neutral no. Uh, jurisdiction. No, that that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen for sovereigns, by and large, for state-owned enterprises, development banks, or all of these. You know, it, it, actors who enjoy immunity would not, through choice, choose the courts of another sovereign uh, to to have their disputes resolved. So arbitration has played a very important role there in offering both a neutral forum but one which has promoted the rule of law in that it has you know, allowed a system in which the promises they have made uh, are enforced and capable of being enforced and that you know, in, in and of itself promotes investment and so on. So that's, that's one body of actors for whom a court process is not ever likely to be a viable alternative. Do you think that they will come and... I mean, I know in this context, we're not necessarily really talking about investment treaty disputes. We might be talking about role of state actors and commercial disputes. But nevertheless, is there not some pressure on those state actors to have their disputes resolved in a more open and transparent way? Because those disputes do still tend to be resolved confidentially if they're going to arbitration. I think that's a slightly different question. There are naturally um, conversations about whether you know, important state contracts and things that are the, the product of procurement processes should be dealt with in a private dispute resolution system. But that, that's a matter of policy for those individual uh, countries. And of course, it's well within their powers to decide that those disputes should be dealt with in their courts. So that would make it the public forum. But to put it in another court, 
I think is, is, uh, it, is so counter to the idea of sovereignty and important expressions of sovereignty that I can't see it ever being viable. And they can make the arbitration process public in some way. Absolutely, anyway. and, and they are in any event subject to freedom of information requests and so on and so forth, yes. which at a certain level yeah. promotes transparency or a degree of transparency in those processes. So that deals with one you know, non-trivial part of the arbitration demographic. You've also then got industries for whom arbitration is you know, almost institutionalised at this point. I'm thinking in particular of, uh, of the energy markets, oil and gas in particular, as a function of history, but, both because many, uh, but also because many of these projects do involve state actors. Mm. That's an industry that has just embraced arbitration at such an overwhelming level mm. uh, over many, many decades that it's hard to see why there would be uh, a change at that point. And indeed, the users of, of the system are themselves now inside the system, contributing to developments of the rules, they are members of the IBA, they are members of the SEAC Users' Council and so on. So they're, you know, it, as I say, it really has become institutionalised. And then you have you know, the, the body of, uh, of decision makers for whom uh, having a say in who the decision maker is going to be is important. They wish to have a certain influence for what that's worth, and that, you know, mm. there is a debate as to whether uh, the, a party-nominated arbitrator or the idea of the party-nominated arbitrator is somewhat overblown or not, but nonetheless, they would like to have a say in who that person is, what is their legal background, industry background, what do we know anecdotally about you know, their appetite for certain arguments, are they black-letter lawyers, so on and so forth. Um, confidentiality. You know, many of the surveys I think of recent years have 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 seen have have suggested that confidentiality is a less important factor. I think that's just the way in which some of these questionnaires are put together, because it does remain important for for many parties, particularly because many arbitrations um, are, are are the product of live relationships, and having that resolved in a non-public forum can often lead to uh, if, you know, a more amicable outcome. That doesn't mean a settled outcome necessarily, but one that hasn't been exacerbated by being in a public forum. It's not, there isn't the sort of PR machinery and the, the theater of media surrounding that dispute, which, is a, which can be a great distraction, can really polarize mm. the litigants um, and arbitration doesn't, you know, generally doesn't suffer from that. Finality of outcome, so the absence of appeals, although, you know, one might think, well, if you're on the losing end, you know, isn't that a disadvantage of, of arbitration? Actually, if you speak to most rational business persons, what they really want is just an outcome within an acceptable period of time and then move on. Yes. And two years, or whatever it might be, is an acceptable outcome. Eight years is not an acceptable outcome, even if it's the you know, quote-unquote right decision at the end. Um, use of trusted advisors, you know, so our international arbitration doesn't have any particular bar impediments. So for company X, who very much likes to work with a particular law firm, that law firm can go and be their advocates in that forum and, and they feel thereby they're protecting their investment, they're working with their persons of choice. Um, and, you know, so all of these factors are significant to, uh, you know, to a non-trivial percentage of business actors and state actors. And I'm not sure there's anything in 
any of these new proposals that can really meet the spectrum or anything like the full spectrum of those considerations? Well, I mean, one thing... Yes, <laughs> Bernard. Well, I was going to say, actually, the recent Queen Mary report actually puts 87% of respondents who believe confidentiality is still important. Um, what I was going to say is that, um, that that's an impressive list. Uh, um, and, and I don't want to set Bernard up necessarily as the court person, because I know you do both court and arbitration. But which of the impressive lists which those of you just given do you think is the hardest one for the court to address? Because some of them I know that you may say the Singapore court may at least try to address. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Sophie has presented an impressive list. Um, there are six points she makes. Um, let me deal with some of them where she may be right. Um, uh, but I'll go through the six. The first, in slightly different order. The first is um, historical and institutionalised. There's no doubt she is right on that. There is uh, historically, where we are now, a number of industries which prefer arbitration. And in a way, there's nothing I can do about that other than to suggest that maybe things are uh, changing. Uh, secondly, who is the uh, decision maker? Again, I agree that historically that is regarded sometimes as an important element. Um, and uh, uh, But the other four things that she mentions, um, I do disagree with. So, for example, state actors. Um, again, she is right in part um, uh, because uh, uh, various states would not want to have go before a local judge in another state. But the great thing about the Singapore court is it's an international, it's almost like a United Nation of judges. So they have recently appointed, for example, um, David Newberger, from the England Supreme Court, the ex-Chief Justice of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin, the ex-Chief Justice of Australia, Bob French, uh, and you could not, those are just three out of 15, you could not get a better international forum before whom to submit disputes. So that's the one point I would disagree on. Um, on, uh, taking them again slightly different order, confidentiality, the Singapore court has dealt with that because you can have confidentiality there in an appropriate case. Uh, and uh, if, if, if there are questions of trademarks or secrecy or whatever, um, I'm not here to bind the Singapore court, but I am sure that confidentiality would be high on that list. Uh, finality of outcome, I've always found that interesting. Everyone I know, is in favour, industries all over, they're very strongly in favour of finality of outcome until they lose. And when they lose, they don't like finality of outcome. <laughs> and I have said it before, any lawyer who advises a client to sign a contract with an arbitration clause governed by ancestral law anyway, that doesn't tell the client expressly that if you lose, you will not be able to challenge the appeal in the ordinary course is negligent. <laughs> You've got to tell the client that they cannot challenge an arbitration order. And if you tell them that expressly, they will think again. Uh, so in terms of speed, it's an important finality of outcome. They, speed is important. But again, the Singapore court, I think, is fantastic. They, um, uh, so I've dealt with uh, state. Uh, the last point that Sophie mentioned is representation. That is an important point. And again, Singapore court has addressed that by allowing foreign representative lawyers. So I did the first case in Singapore last year in Singapore where I had an advocate who was an, a US attorney based, I think, in Pennsylvania. Um, you have to show you're an advocate of good standing, provided you're an advocate of good standing. That was a lawyer from Pennsylvania, I think, who had acted for that particular client for a number of years, and he was the advocate controlling the case in Singapore. So I agree with Sophie that um, a number of the points historically are important, 
But for example, uh, uh, certainly in Singapore, uh, an approach, uh, an attempt has been made to address those, and then you have other advantages, where I, I, certainly of, of a court. So um, uh, th those would be my responses to what Sophie says. Are you convinced, Sophie? Well, I, I'm not sure you've really met my point on, on decision makers for sovereign actors, because it's not, it's not a qualitative judgment. I mean, there is no doubt that the international commercial courts around the world boast the highest possible calibre of decision makers. And you know, any rational actor should have absolute confidence in both the, the neutrality and expertise of those decision makers. But sovereignty is sovereignty. And state actors simply do not cede sovereignty to other jurisdictions. And that's a sort of full stop remark. Um, the point of you know, appeals and, uh, and finality, it is an interesting question. Of course, in London, we still have in principle the benefit of an appeal on a point of law. And of course, those of us who advise clients do, do have that discussion. Of course, there is the option to opt in to that, though you know, institutional rules cut that off. So you have to think about how to you know, incorporate that uh, in an agreement. But I cannot think of a single example in more than 10 years in which any of the, the actors I have described have wanted to opt in to that system or that after the fact we then had a discussion about whether we should have done that or not. Though that's of course because of my impressive uh, yes, win list. Yes, absolutely, um, yes. But, but you know, so, that, so it's certainty, finality, it is important, but it's probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen such a take up of international arbitration in the banking and financial services sector because precedent remains important. That we're not dealing with individual relationships by and large, we're dealing with instruments and it's important to have certainty and precedent on those instruments. I, I think, if I'm, I'm not sure I interrupt you, so you're absolutely right on that. I think there are different industries have different ideas, um, historical or whatever. So for example, in shipping, there is a huge uh, interest in uh, in arbitration, um, uh, insurance historically, even I'm going to say shipping insurance, so insurance of ships, has always traditionally gone to the courts. And I've always wondered why one or, or the other. Um, uh, and um, it, I, it may be historical. I, I keep on asking people about this, but no one can give me an answer as to why this is so. Um, What's quite interesting is when we're talking about dispute resolution, one's looking at numbers, and the truth is no one knows what the numbers are in terms of cases. The number of cases involving that go to arbitration involving state actors uh, and others. Uh, we do know, so for example, from London, I've done a statistical analysis of this, I've tried to. Um, in London, the number of shipping cases, for example, there are something like 2,000 arbitrations a year. Now, that is a huge, uh, huge number of arbitrations, much, much more, for example, than the, I don't know, the ICC, the LCIA, SEAC put together. Um, it's probably doubled all of those put together. Um, and, and also compared to the commercial court. Um, and so well, I completely agree that, it's, that there are different, I suppose, viewpoints of different actors in different, jurist in different uh, industries uh, and types of actors. So for example, state authorities, um, state actors may well be reluctant on any view to go before any court. I understand that. Um, commercial entities, I'm not sure that's necessarily, <laughs> and different kinds of entities. So one's looking at different kinds of industries, different kinds of entities. And, and, and you know, market forces. So, for example, you know, uh, 
The only exception I can think of to the, to the sovereignty issue is when you know, a sovereign is forced into the international capital markets and it's a requirement from the bondholders yeah. that any litigation go to New York courts or English courts. That is often resisted in negotiation, but sometimes that's the price. Have the bargaining power. That's the price. Yeah. Um, what's into? I mean, just going back to this question of uh, particular industries and groups that choose one thing over another, and are they consistent in that? It's quite interesting to observe that with financial services in Asia, there is a far higher take up of arbitration than there is of litigation, and that the reason for that must be the absence of enforcement machinery regionally, you know, across that region yes. for a court judgment and for the security instruments that underpin so if you those financial arrangements. Through the Hague choice of courts or whatever. Or whatever. Might, the courts may be a yeah. bit more back in business there. Yeah. But it, it does it does show you that that is an important, if not critical, part of that whole machinery. Whether it's based on a myth or not. Um, well, I, I, that's probably all we have time for because we've been chatting about this. But I mean, I think what is very clear is that um, the developments throughout the world, and particularly if we start to see radical changes in, in terms of rules and offering from the court, I think will it will drive behaviour in international arbitration. I, th I think it will make clients start to think about what the different options are. So maybe, you know, in the sort of next decade, we'll be looking at a very different picture. Who knows? But anyway, thank you very much, Bernard, and thank, thank you. you for coming. Thank you, Angeline. Thank you.